0: That's a strange story in Exodus 12. Exodus 12 is, is one of the best chapters in the Old Testament, right? They, the Passover lamb. God's people are redeemed out of Egypt by the blood of the Passover lamb. Out they go. They come to the Red Sea and they, they cross on dry ground. God, God leads the way before them and God moves and guards behind them, preventing the Egyptians. It's a wonderful story. And tucked in the way in the middle of that, Oh. And they got some new jewelry. What are they going to do with that new jewelry? I mean, they're not going downtown. They're not going to get all decked out and 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 prettied up for where they're going next. They're going to the wilderness. So what is that gold for? They've seen God's power. They saw it at the Red Sea. They saw it at Mount Sinai. Yet so easily they, like we, stumble, don't they? So easily they begin to think of God in Egyptian terms. Now, why would they think of God in the Egyptian terms? They lived in, Egyptian, in Egypt. They lived like Egyptians for far too long. Now, granted, they were way down the social ladder. They were slaves, not wealthy. They didn't have gold for themselves. They must have been delighted that on the way out, it's almost like God was giving them back pay for all those years of servitude. And they get this fancy gold and silver stuff and new clothes, fine Egyptian linen, to take with them. They must have been quite excited. What are they going to do? Well, certainly they're going to wear them, aren't they? I mean, you probably think about the Israelites going out of Egypt. and They all look bedraggled like slaves. And it's probably how they're showed in many, many of the movies. But they had rings on their fingers. They had earrings in their ears. They had bracelets on. They had gold brooches pinned on. They were all decked out. The gold brooches pin- pinned on brand new, fine Egyptian linen. They were a sight to behold as they made their way forward out of, out of Egypt into this new land that God had had prepared for them and sent them to, and that they were all dressed up for. But Moses has been on the mountain a long time. We don't know what's happened to him. And so they make, they they go to Aaron, they said, show us God. And so Aaron comes up with this golden calf. They think of God in Egyptian terms much like the apis bull of Egypt and one of, their, one of their chief gods would ride on the bull, but he was invisible. You couldn't see him. You could only see the golden bull that he would ride upon. Or actually there would be a living bull that was the apis bull and his markings and what, he, what that bull would do, they would determine answers from God. They would get oracles from the bull as the channel through whom which this God would direct the Egyptians. Moses was their channel. Moses was the one who delivered to them the oracles of God. But now Moses has gone to the mountain and he hasn't returned. We don't know what's become of this Moses. Make us a way to have God continue to guide them and they default to thinking about God in Egyptian ways. And so there's Aaron's lame story. I toss it into the fire, and out comes this calf. But Moses intercedes for them. God does not destroy them. There are consequences for this sin of the golden calf, which occurs basically around Exodus 32. I'm thinking that's where we are. And and I'm giving you this background because this happens, remarkably, just before the tabernacle. In fact, it's between tabernacle building plans and permitting and the actual construction over here. So in between the permitting process and the architectural drawings that God gives to Moses, from there to the construction commencing, there's this thing going on with the golden calf that's in danger of derailing the whole thing. This could ruin everything. Moses intercedes, Moses cannot fully atone for, cover their sin. That would take someone greater than Moses who was yet to come. But Moses told the people, remove the earrings and ornaments that they had received from the Egyptians and they did not wear them anymore. That's important because they were wearing them. Moses wouldn't tell them to take them off if they hadn't been wearing them. That's how I know that they were so excited and so thrilled to have all this fancy stuff that was now theirs to wear. Like, they were like the Egyptians. They had been slaves. And look how God had elevated them. I mean, they could have walked right into some of these prosperity churches, right? Look what God had done. Wow. But... That's not why God did any of this. He tells them, remove the earrings, remove the ornaments. They didn't wear them anymore. God had called them out of Egypt not to be Egyptian. God had called them to be different. A people set apart to worship Him. To represent God to the nations, not to represent Egypt. As God's people, they were called to worship God with their lives. Not only a certain time, a certain place, a certain day. They were to remember this redemption from Egypt. And so Moses gives them, he reminds them of the calendar and certain key feast, festivals that they must celebrate. Passover, their rescue out of Egypt. Pentecost, the celebration of this good land that God was giving them and the abundant harvest that would be provided there. The Feast of Tabernacles, where well, they would remember and celebrate how God had dwelt among them as his own uniquely chosen people. These are the core festivals that they must celebrate year after year. And while they're rushing off to make other gods of their own design, God is giving Moses the design the true patterns for their worship. The patterns for their worship that are intended to direct their hearts toward God and his future. God is giving them the plans for a place of worship, what we know is the tabernacle, that will be a continuing testimony. It will point to And not only how it is constructed, the way that it is made, but also what happens there will be an ongoing testimony of their ultimate forgiveness of sin and restoration to God who will actually be able to dwell with them forever. So the tabernacle is meant to be a place of testimony, a telling of God's story that points toward their ultimate redemption. That's what it's all about. Now, we've had the golden calf. It was in danger of disrupting everything. But now they have renewed their covenant with God again. They've been called back to true worship. And so the program continues in Exodus 35 where God tells the people how to build a place where they will know God through worship. That's the aim. They're not supposed to gather there and worship. They're going to know God. They're going to understand God. They're going to know what God has done for them through their worship as they gather at this place. They will regularly gather for prayer and music and sacrifice, and there they will continue to learn of God's holiness and His love. They will learn of God's hatred of sin, and they will learn of His mercy and forgiveness. They are to build this tabernacle as as an act of worship. Through this tabernacle, not only they, but the generations, generations which follow them are going to learn of God, who He is, and what He has done for them. This testimony of the tabernacle is going to strengthen God's people in coming generations, against the lies around them, the idolatry of the surrounding nations. So we want to consider this morning the building of the tabernacle. What can we learn from Israel building the tabernacle in Exodus 35? We too, as a church, have a building project before us, don't we? I mentioned that in the announcements, business meeting, we need to decide that. Shall we now build as God provides the amount needed? And if God um, gives us clearance through the permitting process, should we then start? And so that question will be before us. We're thinking about building. Well, I thought, while we're thinking about building a literal building, it's a good time to talk about when God builds. Because when God builds, it's about more than a building. When God builds, he builds buildings that build people. And often the process is as important as the outcome in terms of the building. What God does through his people as they build. We're also seeking to build a place where next generations will gather to worship and learn of the true God and life with him. What he has done for us. The future that is set before us. We're seeking to build a place where these future generations, along with ourselves, will continue to be strengthened in our souls against the idolatry around about us. There's a lot of parallels between then and now. So we can learn something from these times, whether it's tabernacle or temple, or a rebuilding of the temple. There are things we can learn from these times when God builds. So we're going to spend about four or five weeks, five weeks, I think, because not only are we going to focus on tabernacle, the place for a temple, the building of Solomon's temple, the really rebuilding later of the temple after the exile, but all of that points to something even bigger. In fact, we alluded to it in 1 Peter chapter 2. God is building a temple, which is his people. And so when we think about when God builds, don't leave the people part out of it. Don't think about just buildings. When God builds, God is building a people. 1 Peter describes us as living stones built together into a spiritual house. Ephesians 2, verse 21 says that we are being fitted and joined together as a holy temple to the Lord, built on the foundation of God's word, that we are being built and strengthened by each part doing its part. We can learn something about how God is building us as his temple when we considered. When we consider in one story after another, how did God build when God builds? So first, I invite you to turn with me to the tabernacle in um, Exodus 35. And just because we're talking about the tabernacle, I should, have, I should put a picture up just to give you an image, if you're not sure, what is this temple goes camping we're talking about? There's an, an image of it, an artist depiction of what the, they didn't have Kodak then, so we're working with a, a depiction. And the one thing you would miss here is there would be the tents of Israel gathered all around on every side. So God is dwelling in this tabernacle in the midst of his people. But the different aspects, the funny thing about the tabernacle is it didn't look like much on the outside. It was covered with goatskins. But on the inside, it was glorious gold and beautiful the beauty was on the inside of the tabernacle. That's, a, that's an interesting feature of it. But there's, there's unique and specific aspects of every little part, even the sockets and the kind of wood that's made and all of those poles that hold that fine Egyptian linen. Remember those new clothes they took out of Egypt with them? There they hang. But this is what they're going to build together. And Exodus 35 describes how it happens when God builds. What can we learn from the building of the tabernacle? Well, chapter 35 begins on a very not quite so tabernacle note. Exodus 35 and verse 1, Moses assembled all the congregation of the people of Israel and said to them, These are the things the Lord has commanded you to do. Six days work shall be done. On the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest holy to the Lord. So Starting out, before we even begin this big project, in fact, this is going to be the biggest thing that Israel has collectively done, this gathering together and building the tabernacle, before they begin the project, before they do this big lift, this first big ask in giving and serving together, God is going to remind them of the rest that they have in him. That whatever we do to the Lord in giving and serving, it begins from a place of rest and trust. We talked about Sabbath before, that Sabbath is, tied into Sabbath is faith in God who will provide for me when I'm not working. Even in harvest time, the harvest will be okay, okay while I wait a day resting in God. We're going to have enough manna for the following day if we don't go out and gather on the Sabbath day because this is a day that God has given us to rest rather than work and provide for ourselves. Sabbath is an expression of faith and trust and rest and peace with God. It's a return to the garden. And so they're going to give a lot. They're going to work a lot and yet they're going to begin from a place of rest and trust. We can easily get caught up in a big project. You've got a to-do list and, and weekends are a good time for that. Well, someday during the week or to the weekend, and we could spend a lot of time talking about Saturdays or Sunday in terms of a Sabbath rest, but do you take time to rest from the work that needs to be done and refresh your soul in the Lord. There's a time to work and there's a time to rest, and that's what Moses reminds them even before this grand big project. Okay, let's move on from there. Begin with a place from a place of rest and trust. Each one should give out of what God has given you. Look at verse 4. Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, This is the thing the Lord has commanded Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution gold silver bronze blue and purple scarlet yarns of fine twisted linen goats hair tanned ramskins and goatskins and and acacia wood oil for the lamps spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense onyx stones and jewels for setting for the ephod and for the breastpiece each one is to contribute according to what they had that reminds me of 2 Corinthians chapter 8 if you want to if you want to look at a couple of place chapters that are that are are the go-to places for principles in terms of giving, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Those two. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 describes giving to another project, a project for the poor in Jerusalem, and Paul describes this poor church of Macedonia, north of Corinth. They didn't have nearly the resources that the city of Corinth had. And yet, he says, they gave according to their means, In fact, even beyond their means. How did they do that? They gave themselves first to the Lord, and then, by the will of God, they gave themselves to us. In verse 12, Paul goes on, It is acceptable to give according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. Don't worry about what you can't give in terms of giving. First of all, give according to what we have. Give according to what God has given. Well, they are to give gold and silver. Where did they get the gold and silver? They're to give fine linen. Where did they get the fine linen? Well, they got that in Exodus 12, didn't they? They got that from spoiling the Egyptians. That God provided for them is a matter of what are they supposed to do with it. The Lord sets his people free from Egypt so that they might worship him. And he moves the Egyptians to give them what's needed to pay for this worship tabernacle that God is going to have them build. Remember when Paul tells the Corinthians, who were a relatively wealthy church in comparison to the Macedonians, he said, what do you have that you did not receive? What what do you have that does not come to you by the Lord's hands, that we actually end up being stewards of that which God has placed into our hands And God simply put it into their hands, not so they could put the bracelets on the arm and the ring on the fingers and the earrings in the ear. God put it in their hands so they could carry it off into the wilderness there where they would worship Him. God did not set them free from Egypt so they could be more like the Egyptians. God called them to be different. What are they going to do with what the Egyptians give them. Are they going to be Egyptian rich? You know what Egyptian rich looks like. You've got the gold, and so you put it on so that other people can see it. I mean, what good is it to have gold, to have resources, to have status in the community if nobody else knows it? So you put it on, you wear it, the bracelets up the arm and the earrings dangling, the necklaces, the brooches pinned on to the nice linen garments. And everybody knows that you're one from the upper class because you're wearing your wealth on your sleeve. That's Egyptian rich. I use what I have in ways that bring attention and glory to me. I'm the owner of this. This is mine. And this is my identity. I'm a wealthy person. Well, Exodus rich is different. Exodus rich is devoting what I've received in ways that bring attention and give glory to God who has redeemed me. Am I going to be Egyptian rich and draw attention to me? Am I going to be Exodus rich and draw attention to what God has done and bring him glory? Let me give an example. Just a couple days ago, I've had this fixation over the years with the little Mazda Miata. You know what that is? little Mazda Miata, a cute little uh, European style. I know Mazda is not European, but they styled this out of an Italian type roadster sports car. It's a cute little and apparently they drive like one. A lot of fun to drive. And I've always had this fixation. I don't know why. I probably wouldn't really fit well into a Mazda Miata. I'm a little tall. It would be kind of like sitting in economy class, I think. But it wouldn't drive like economy class. Well, just the other day, Julie and I were together, and we saw this beautiful little red Mazda Miata. And I said to her, I said, you'd look good in that. (laughs) That's Egyptian rich. That's, I would sit in this car and... I would look good sitting in this car and other people would look at me sitting in this car. Well, I said, Julie would look good in that, but what am I thinking? I would look good sitting next to her. You see? That's Egyptian rich. Look how what I have draws attention to me. I made the comment, I think because Exodus 35 was in my my mind just after I pointed out, I said, yeah, you'd look good in that. I said, yeah, but that's probably Egyptian rich rather than Exodus rich. I have a friend who recently, well, he had one of those fancy cars. A car that was probably a little bit above his his lifestyle, and yet it drew attention. It was a fancier car than any of his peers had, and there was some identity gained out of that car. But along the way, he realized, what I would put in these terms, it was better to be Exodus rich than Egyptian rich. It was better to get out from under the debt of the car and to actually use the resources God has given us for things that matter most in terms of our testimony of God who has redeemed us. Exodus rich instead of Egyptian rich. The question is, are we owners or stewards? Are we Egyptian rich or Exodus rich? That's the question in the construction of the tabernacle. Will the people focus their resources that God has given them on what Egypt valued, or will they focus on telling the next generation of the redemption that God has accomplished? That's what's before them. Will we use the gold that we've been given for a golden calf or a golden lampstand? That's the question that's before us week by week, month by month, year by year. Will we use what God gives us for what our own imaginations and the world around us values or will we use it to tell God's story? A golden lampstand. Each one gives according as what God has given to us as stewards of his resources, not owners of our own. Secondly, each one should give and serve from a willing and grateful heart. Did you pick that up? In fact, already in verse 5, whoever is of a generous heart. God loves, in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, God loves a cheerful giver. In fact, in verses 20 to 29 of Exodus 35, there's a phrase, or or a thought that keeps coming up. In fact, six times in those ten verses, this keeps getting reemphasized. Nothing else here is repeated like this. Everyone whose heart stirred him, whose spirit moved him, in all who were of a willing heart, all the women whose heart stirred them to use their skill, all the men and women, the people of Israel, whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work. They brought it to Moses as a free will offering. Over and over this idea is repeated in those 10 verses as they describe that which is being brought and given. It is from those who have a willing heart, moved in their spirit, whose heart stirred them, they are moved and bring it as a free will offering. Each one gives and serves from a willing and grateful heart. There's no manipulation these are free will offerings. There's not a tithe or a certain percentage. There's not a tax that's put on each individual. Everybody should bring this much. No, this is a free will offering. What you have, what God has placed in your hands to carry out of Egypt, give from that. Giving is limited by what we have, but it can also be limited by what's in our heart. Earlier we said each one gives according to what they have, but here each one gives according to what's in our heart. We don't want our hearts to limit us in terms of what God would do through us. A generous heart, a willing heart, whose spirit's been moved by God's spirit. Second Corinthians chapter 9, I mentioned that chapter earlier along with chapter 8. In verses 6 through 8 it says, Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully or abundantly will reap abundantly. Each one must give as he or she has determined in their own heart, not reluctantly, not under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work." You may abound in every good work. I don't want you to think about this just in terms of giving, in terms of giving gold or silver, in terms of giving money. Think of it as giving yourself, Participate in every good work. We're going to see that in a minute. But first, it would be good to pause and just remind here that if we're asking, God, would you move our hearts? God, would you lead us? Would you guide us in giving? Let it not be under a compulsion. Let it not be an ever guilt manipulation. Lord, what would you have me to do? That's what I want to do. What have you placed into my hands for this as compared to that? We might not know. It's a matter of prayer. Lord, would you lead me? Would you move my spirit by your spirit? And we'll trust God to do that. Each one gives willingly. And each one serves as God has gifted you to serve. We're back up to verse 10 and also towards the end of the chapter. Mix a couple of them together here. Starting in verse 10, Let every skillful craftsman among you come and make all that the Lord has commanded. So this chapter is not merely about giving. It's not merely about gold and silver and bronze and linens. No, it's let every skillful craftsman among you make all what the Lord has commanded. What are we talking about? We're talking about making the tent and its coverings, its hooks and its frames, its bars and its pillars and its bases, the ark with its poles, the mercy seat, the table, the utensils, the bread, the lampstand, the oil, the altar of incense the altar of burned offerings and its grating of bronze, the bronze basin, the hangings of the court, the pillars and the bases, and the screen, the cloth screen for the gate, the pegs of the tabernacle and of the court, the finely worked garments for ministering the holy place. There's all kinds of different things that require all kinds of different skills. Look down to chapter 36 and verse 1. You can find the same thing repeated around chapter 35, verse 30, but I'm going to jump to 36. It's a little more concise. Chapter 36 and verse 1. Bezalel and Ahaliab, and every craftsman in whom the Lord has put skill and intelligence to know how to do any work in the construction of the sanctuary, shall work in accordance with all the Lord has commanded. First of all, God has gifted different ones with skills and abilities differently and they should work according to those skills and ability and yet do those things in their serving according to as the Lord has commanded. And Moses called Bezalel and Ahaliab and every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put skill, everyone whose heart had stirred him to come to do the work. So God has gifted specific people for different roles, giving them what is needed to do it. There are goldsmiths and there are silversmiths, and there are large pieces to fashion, and there are small, fine work to be done. There's carpentry and there's chemistry, the mixing of different things together. There's baking the bread and there's leather work. There's sewing and there's assembly. There's much to do with many different skills contributing together to build the tabernacle. And that's true within the church. Think about the kind of ways that different people serve in the body of Christ for the building up one another in love, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the being built up together by that which each part does its part. What are those different parts? Well, in the church we have finance and we have fine arts. We have organists and we have organizers. We have member care, and we have long care. We have preaching and plumbing, teaching and technology. In global missions and in a local church, all kinds of different skills are needed in building the body of Christ. God has outfitted His body of many distinct and diverse, different-placed members for the good of the whole. And when, when those members serve together in a harmonized way, led by His Spirit according to the Word of the Lord, it's a beautiful, wonderful thing. Even in terms of a construction project, there will be times when we'll be able to roll up our sleeves and participate. There'll be times when there, with certain knowledge and skills, we'll be able to join in, whether it's some of the woodworking for the exterior, in fact even where some of the getting ready to move out of buildings that we actually need to strip out internal furnishings before before that building is taken down. And there's things we want to save out of that building, and we're going to have to roll up our sleeves and participate in the process to get some of that done. But that's within the body, ongoing, the ministry. In fact, the ministry that we'll continue to do as we carry out church week by week, even while construction happens in a building. We can roll up our sleeves and get hands-on in the body of Christ that God is building. That's one of the things that stood out for me, that each one serves as God has gifted you to serve. What is true in the tabernacle, what will be true in the temple, is true in the body of Christ today as he builds us together into his holy temple indwelt by the Spirit of the living God. And there's a problem that that um, this section closes on, and it's a problem that every church wants. The people, in the midst of the giving and the serving, the people have to be told enough. Stop the need has been met. Take a rest. Would't that be a wonderful problem to have in 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 verse three of chapter thirty six they received from Moses all the contribution that the people of of Israel had brought for doing the work on the sanctuary, the tabernacle. They still kept bringing him free will offerings every morning so that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came, each from the task that he was doing. Whether it was leatherworking, whether it's goldsmithing, whether it's wood construction, whether it's seamstressing, linen pieces together to make those curtains, whatever's being done, each craftsman comes and they, and they, and they say to Moses, The people bring much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. And so Moses gave command, and the word was proclaimed through the camp, Let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution for the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing. The people were told to stop giving. The material they had was enough to do all the work and even more. Now, I look forward to the time in this whole building project. And we haven't pushed a lot on a capital campaign and all of that stuff, and each church does that differently. We've, we've taken a, 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 an approach that seems to fit the personality of our church and how God has led us for this body. But I look forward to the day when we can say, as they did through, as God said through Moses here, enough. God has provided through his people all that is needed for this project. It won't be the last thing. It won't be the last project. It won't be the last free will offering for for, for Israel. But won't it be good when God abundantly provides all that is needed and we can say, look what God has done. It's enough. Look what God has done with his people. This is the same people who started out Egyptian rich and God has made them Exodus rich. These are the same people that went from golden calf to gracious giving and serving and building together. Look what God has done in his people. You see, when God builds something, God is building his people. That's what God is doing here imagine, imagine a brush prairie we can talk about the building campaign but imagine a brush prairie if the nursery director were to come to the pastors and say tell the people that it's enough we have so many people coming to serve in in nursery and willing to hold babies and help that, that, that we have more than we need tell them to stop coming has nursery reached that problem yet? not quite I've heard almost, but not quite. A pre-K. We have so many people coming to help. We have teachers and assistants and helpers. More than we need. Wouldn't it be great if some of those people who've served regularly over the years could be told, could you just take the next three months for a rest? Pull aside, maybe just reflect on how else God might next be using you. We've got this for now. Sunday school. BP Academy all kinds of ways that we serve one another in building up the body of Christ in small groups and d-groups, wouldn't it be wonderful if we got to the point that it was more than enough? Stop volunteering. Said no church ever, right? (laughs) But why not? Couldn't we? If God would work this way among the makers of the golden calf, would he not also do so with us? And I'm fully convinced that our job as a church is not to find things and programs and ministries and activities to fill people's time. I don't want to create more church bureaucracy that gives more people a place and a role and something to do to keep them busy. I don't want us to be so busy in the church that we're no good to the people around us. I want us to do that which God would have us to do together with the freedom and the margin in our lives, serving Him from a place of rest and trust and peace that we have a margin to share of His grace to the people who are around us. In rest and trust, give what God has given you to give. Serve as God has gifted you to serve from a willing and grateful heart from all that God has done for you. Let's pray. Father, would you give us this problem? Would you give us the opportunity to say you have done more than enough? You have provided more than we see the need for at the present. Your people are so graciously and willingly serving that we need for them to take a break. Father, work within our hearts. By your Spirit, lead our spirit. Make us more willing than we are, Father. That you might not only do your work through us, as Toby described in her testimony, but you would be doing your work in us. You would be growing us in our trust and confidence and our resting in you as we see you working through us. Oh Lord, let us not be satisfied with Egyptian rich. Make us, Father, by the working of your Spirit within us. Make us exodus-rich, using what we have in resources and abilities that others might know of the wonderful grace of Jesus our Savior. Lord, as you refine gold and silver in the building of this tabernacle, refine Mold, shape, and make us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.